are building a religion. We are building it bigger. We are widening the corridors and adding more lanes. We are building a religion, a limited edition. We are now accepting callers for these pendant keychains. The resistance is useless. David Black is one of the pillars of the Ruby community. He's the organizer of RubyConf, going all the way back to the first RubyConf in 2001. He's the co-director of Ruby Central and runs his own consulting business, Ruby Power and Light. He recently published a book with Manning Publications titled Ruby for Rails. Welcome. Thank you. So you organized the very first Ruby conference in 2001 and... A lot of the people we know now, Jim Wyrick, Dave Thomas, those kinds of people were there. What? Where'd you get the idea? And what, way back then, why did you feel like there needed to be a Ruby conference? Well, actually, the first Ruby conference I sort of inherited, uh, so to speak. It was originally organized by a Rubyist by the name of Guy Hurst. He had found the venue and, and speakers and had done quite a bit of the preparation and then for various reasons, he had to pull out of it. And what happened was that Dave Thomas had been involved and he called or emailed or whatever me and Chad Fowler and asked if we would step in and and sort of see the project through to completion. So we did. And then in the years since then, um, we've founded Ruby Central, which is the parent now the parent organization of the conference and it's been our annual project since then so i can't claim to have had the original inspiration for it but i got involved i think this more or less the summer before it happened and uh, and saw it through now the first it was in portland oregon or where did that where was the first no, one no the first one was in tampa florida and is that no you live in new york city so i live in new jersey um yeah that site was chosen by Guy Hurst, and I don't know why, that was part of what we inherited, actually, um, was where it was, and, um, you know, it was fine, it was, we sort of just took it in stride that it would be in Tampa, because it had been, that I think he'd already signed on with the venue at that point, point. and the second one was in Seattle, and we basically more or less try to kind of rotate time zones or parts of the country so that any given year it will be, you know, conven- more convenient for some people, maybe a little less for others, but just kind of keep it keep it moving around. I'm so you know what I forgot. Actually it all comes back to me now. The reason it was Tampa is that Uppsala was in Tampa that year. And for the first I guess it was the first two years we sort of followed Uppsala around and then because we wanted to sort of decide our own venues, we, we broke away from that. Last year in San Diego, we did dovetail with Oopsla again, sort of by coincidence. I mean, they were going to be in San Diego. We were due for a West Coast venue, and we thought, you know, all else being equal, let's just do the same city. So we did, and that, that worked out. Well, right now it seems like there are obviously many people to- topics people are interested in with Ruby, but domain-specific languages, test-driven development, of course, website programming. What kind of, way back then, only a mere four or five years ago, what kind of topics were important or what things were people interested in with Ruby? Well, I think a lot of the same things as as we're still talking about these days. Um, 
let's see, what did we, I mean, just using that first conference as a kind of uh, barometer or, or signpost or whatever, if I'm remembering correctly, Nathaniel Talbot did a major presentation at that conference on the, the test unit framework, um, and that was, you know, I think a bit of a turning point for at least several of us in sort of raising awareness of, of test-driven dr- development and so on. Another thing that came up originally at that conference was the RubyGems packaging system, which was proposed by Ryan Levengood, who actually produced a, an early version of it. Then Ryan was sort of out of the loop of Ruby for a few years, and it got picked up by other people, and he's he's more back in the loop, I'm glad to say. What else did we do back then? Oh, you know, talking about the future of the language, of course, that's kind of perennial topic. And also one one thing that was, I think, pretty big back then at, at that conference and elsewhere was discussion about how to get Ruby into the system, so to speak. In other words, how to kind of break barriers and, and find ways to use Ruby sort of productively and and uh, and increasingly in different ways. Wow, so at least something works. Maybe not all of those ideas are exactly the way you planned it, but definitely Ruby's much more popular now. Yeah, so I think it's gone through several waves of popularity. I mean, certainly in Japan, I know you sort of hear this kind of said often, but it really bears saying that in Japan, Ruby has been popular for a long time. Uh, this was really brought home to me actually at the 2002 conference in Seattle where one of the visitors from Japan, Masayoshi Takahashi, brought with him in his luggage literally a box or maybe two boxes with 23 ruby books in Japanese. And you have to understand in, in 2002, you know, all of us supposed, you know, early adopters and all that it was pretty uh, pretty humbling to see he put them all out on the table, you know, to see that we didn't discover this. You know, this is something that, uh, thanks to Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt, who published the Pickaxe book, Programming Ruby, in 2000, I, I think that was really the first kind of big wave of Ruby interest outside of Japan. But this was not our little discover, you know, little secret language or whatever. This was something that was was fully kind of up and running in Japan and we were we were joining an existing community and I think that's important. Now p- previously one of the few existing books in English on Ruby was Ruby in a Nutshell which was translated for Matt's why do you think people didn't translate some of those other 23 books or would that have been too difficult? I really don't know. Um I think the idea always seemed to come up in casual conversation, but I think that getting from that point to the point of actually finding a publisher who will hire someone to do it and all of the sort of market, especially that, you know, now there's a little bit more of a, a kind of momentum for publication of Ruby books, but certainly in, you know, even as of two or three or four years ago or whatever, the kind of market analysis that would be required to to convince a publisher to do that. Um, it certainly seemed and continues to seem like you know a kind of uh, a kind of locked away treasure, so to speak, for 
for those of us who don't read Japanese. But for whatever reason, it just rarely or almost never seemed to seem to actually play out that way. Other than, as you say, the the Mads book that became the uh, Ruby in a Nutshell. Now, upcoming the in the beginning of June, there will be Ruby Conference in Japan. I don't know if you're involved with that at all. But I'm not. I heard that sold out in a matter of hours. It was so popular, and yet they haven't had a consistent Ruby Conference over there. Is that right? This, was, this, this one was described to me as the first. Um, I mean, not literally the first time multiple Rubyists have been in a room together, obviously, but the first sort of sort of organized um, conference of this kind in Japan. And I just hope it doesn't stop the Japanese Rubyists from coming to our conferences. One of the things that, that has made us the most happy about the Ruby conference is, well, Matt's has been to four out of five of them. And last year in San Diego, we had, we had 200 people, and I think 12 or 13 of them were from Japan. I mean, actually came to the conference from Japan. So anyway, hopefully that that won't stop. But it's great that they're uh, that there's now this event that they're that they're doing in Japan too. And they even spoke Koichi, who's writing Yarv Ruby 2.0, was hilarious. And yeah. I forget his name, but the gentleman who wrote Open URI mm-hmm. also presented that. Right, and and Matt, the years he's been there, has always done a keynote address and talked about some aspect of the, the language and its future and and its past occasionally, um, and also been Matt has always been available to uh, to field questions and talk about different things. With, with, I mean, it's great. It's great having him. I think that's one of the things that makes that conference really exciting, certainly for me and others, is just sort of being able to you know, during lunch or whatever, kind of tap Matt's on the shoulder and ask some question about the future of Ruby. I mean, it's just really, it's really nice setting, I think. Well, getting getting back to you, your new book is called Ruby for Rails and seems to cover a lot, quite a bit of depth with Ruby itself. Some Rubyists think that Rails shouldn't be given any special treatment. It's just another framework. And there are other frameworks in Ruby that people could use. Why did you choose to feature Rails in your book title, and do you think that's a a problem that that people are associating Ruby with with this one particular framework? Well, it's two different questions, really. I mean, I think in terms of people associating Ruby uniquely with this framework, I I think the pendulum will kind of you know swing the other way a bit and 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 come to rest at some reasonable point. I think what it comes down to is that Rails is interesting and productive and exciting and there's been a lot of excitement about it. I don't I don't think that has to mean that that there can't be about other things. In fact, I hope there is and will be excitement about other Ruby projects and frameworks at at this level. In terms of why I chose to to feature Rails as a as a focal point of my book, it's not that there aren't other frameworks or people who use other frameworks. It's more that there are a lot of people who use Rails, and I just I felt having kind of watched the the Rails scene and kind of listened to Rails discourse, so to speak, for a number of months, I felt pretty strongly that 
the people who were encountering Ruby mainly because of Rails, or at least initially because of Rails, um, was that that was a big enough population and a population with specific enough needs that I could address that population and address those needs in a book. So in other words, I don't see it as sort of voting against other frameworks or whatever. In fact, I'd be delighted if people wrote, you know, books about all the other frameworks and other projects and so on. I think we need we need more books rather than fewer. But the way things were and are is that there is this population of people coming to Ruby through Rails, and I felt I had things to offer them, things to say to them, um, ways of presenting Ruby that would keep it relevant to Rails, but without watering it down, without sort of apologizing for the fact that it's really a whole programming language, but rather sort of enjoying that and embracing that and, and pointing the way to using the the language productively. Going along with that, a lot of the conventions that are used in Rails are maybe a little bit different from those in Ruby, or at any rate, if people are learning Rails first, then they may have some assumptions about the way Ruby works. For example, uh, the extensions on time, so you can say two.days.ago, and that works really well within Rails. And then if somebody gets down and is writing just a regular Ruby script, that's not going to work unless you went to the extra work of, of mixing in that particular extension to time. Or, for example, if I look at a lot of uh, existing Ruby libraries, they, the actual test files start with the name test, but in Rails it ends with the name test. Do you think those kinds of conventions are just an evolution of the language, or do you think are going to, people are going to have to have special ways to learn, okay, here's how Rails does it, and, and here's how the rest of, of Ruby does it? I think there's a lot of things that are done differently already in different contexts. I mean, file name, well, I guess it depends on what it is, but file naming, for example, I I think it's reasonable to expect that people sort of creating different systems and subsystems from a programming language or with a programming language may or may not, in, in any given system they're creating, follow the same conventions of file naming and that kind of thing that the people working on the language itself did. So, you know, I, I think some of it's kind of on the periphery, so to speak. In other words, things that are probably going to vary a little bit anyway from one thing to another. I think that when it comes to things that Rails actually adds to the language, like as you mentioned, the you know, like five dot days and that kind of thing. I think it's just a learning process. I, people do make these, um, I mean, the, the scenario you're describing happens a lot, namely that people use these and they don't quite realize that, that they're not a Ruby thing or they point to some problem they're having and somebody writes back on the mailing list and says, well, that's because you're using Rails and it redefines X, Y, and Z and, and so on. I think that's a learning process. I think people will just accumulate knowledge of, of what those things are and become more aware. I mean, hopefully reading a book like my book and getting, which does try to get under the skin of like the rail source code and give you 
at least the tools for understanding it so that when questions arise, you can go, in, questions in your own mind arise about what comes from where and, and why and how is it defined and with what impact. You can, if you want to, you can actually explore that um, within the source code as well as within the discussions of it in the in the community. I think there will always be some cases here and there where there's contention or disagreement about whether Rails has gone too far or whether it's sort of almost kind of too smooth and doesn't notify you that things are different and so on. But I somehow think that will kind of come out in the wash, so to speak. I mean, I, I think people will will accumulate knowledge about it, and you, you find out pretty fast that dot days or whatever it is doesn't work if you try it. And that may just be kind of, those things may just be sort of a rite of passage in moving from a completely Rails orientation into more of a kind of overall Rails and Ruby expertise. At Canada on Rails, you had a speech and and just talked about the the beauty of Ruby and, and the language. How did you originally learn Ruby and what appealed to you about the language? I actually discovered Ruby in a bookstore, by purely by chance or coincidence, um, okay. right around, the, I think, literally about a week after the Pickaxe book hit the shelves. It was like November of 2000. And I was in a, a, a Borders bookstore near me and saw this book, just saw the spine of the book. And, I mean, I was in the habit of, of sort of uh, prowling through the programming book sections all the time. What I remember happening is taking the book off the shelf, opening it, looking at the beginning and some code samples, and there's sort of life before that moment and life after that moment. You know what I mean? It's like immediately I just was attracted to this language. Something about it just spoke very directly to me. I loved it. I mean, I think, you know, at the risk of sounding kind of untechnical, it was a case of love at first sight. I mean, it just looked... (laughs) So great. I've been using Perl for quite a while. Um, I really don't like to position myself in this sort of, you know, hating Perl culture because I don't hate Perl. And I got tremendous mileage out of studying Perl and and using Perl and, and talking to Perl programmers and so on. I didn't even maybe quite know that my, somehow my, interest in Perl was going to run its course. I'm not, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't discovered Ruby, but it clearly, for me, op- it was clearly right for me, and it opened up sort of new vistas in many ways. Um, and that's, you know, that's really the most sort of, as I say, even some of it sounds sort of non-technical, but that was really what happened and how I, uh, how I first encountered it. Now, until recently, you were a professor at a university. It seems that often universities are slow to pick up new things that, and maybe understandably so, they don't just want to be floating on every recent fad or whim. But do you think it's it's finally time for universities to involve Ruby in their courses somewhat? Are they doing that, or how did you treat that when you taught at a university? Well, you know, the thing is, I actually taught in a different field. I didn't teach in the computer field. I taught in the field of communication and 
specifically, since, since that's kind of a vague term, I uh, taught in the area of media history, mostly broadcasting history and also film history and, and criticism and, and research. With my work in computers sort of crescendoing for, for a period of years, finally culminating in essentially a career change. I mean, in other words, I've, I've now left the university world and, and I'm now uh, in the computer world. And um, therefore, I have somewhat spotty knowledge of, of the area you're asking about, mostly kind of anecdotal. I don't have any really systematic knowledge of, of how much Ruby is used in, in universities. I hear now and then of people either using Ruby in a course or having professors, sometimes students who have professors who, to whom they say, can I use Ruby for this assignment? And sometimes they'll say yes. I don't, I really don't know kind of how many courses on Ruby there are. I'll tell you one thing. I mean, this is kind of a, a, a side, you know, an indirect answer to your question, but as you know, Ruby Central is serving this year as one of the mentoring organizations for the Google Summer of Code, this um, okay. initiative where Google you know, essentially funds open source projects worked on by students, overseen by mentors, and the mentoring the sort of mapping of mentors to students is handled by a whole bunch of organizations of which Ruby Central is one. We got a lot of applications. I mean, whether or not they're working on this in university courses, I can tell you there's a lot of really interesting (laughs) Ruby work being done by people who are students and who are, you know, serious in many or most cases serious um, computer programming or computer science students. So there, there's some kind. If it, if it's not now, it'll be when when these people become the professors, then Ruby will you know, will certainly I think be be part of the fabric. And I think that I think it is starting already at some at some level. So for the summer of code, will will people be paired up with uh, famous Ruby developers, Dave Thomas or David Hanmar Hansen, or is that a different role that Ruby Central will play for mentoring? Google University students? Well, we have, um, I think, 15 mentors lined up, and um, neither David Thomas nor David Hansen are are among them, but there's some... I'm sure those guys are busy. Those those guys are busy, and and we have a great roster of mentors. I mean, we, we got some real enthusiastic interest from a lot of I think very, uh, very good people. Um, the process is actually just kind of reaching the point in the next day or two where we have to assign mentors to students, and then Google will um, will announce how many awards they're giving to each organization. It, it basically is a ranking system. For the last two or three weeks, the mentors have been ranking the student applications. And then Google essentially sort of, I mean, it's electronic and so on, and Google basically awards the top X number of applications. It depends on, I guess, their budget and, and so on. But they award whatever number it is starting at the top of the rankings. And uh, 
and I don't know exactly how many we'll get. That's the thing. But uh, but as I say, we've got we've got a lot of strong applications. We've got a lot of strong interest from the mentors, and hopefully within the next two or three days, we'll we'll know what's going to happen. Well, it'll be exciting to see what happens with that. Will that be announced on the Ruby Lang site or on the just it on, will on Google? It will be announced or? on probably Ruby Talk and may, yeah, maybe on the Ruby Lang site, uh, the Ruby Central site, certainly. So, yes, once it's, I, I want to wait till it's really nailed down. You know, I think there may be a couple of iterations of kind of assigning. I'm now working on, you know, getting feedback from the mentors, then I'll be assigning mentors to projects, make sure everyone's reasonably happy, then see how many of them actually get funded. And, you know, but yes, by the time it's all set, or once it's all really settled, we'll certainly be announcing that publicly. It's a uh, an exciting thing. I mean, we, we missed the boat last year just because of the, the logistics and timing of the announcing and so on. But that at this point, we're, you know, it's, it's in full swing, and it really should be quite productive, I think. Well, speaking of some of that excitement, RubyConf yeah. is going to happen in Denver this fall. It's mm-hmm. been tripling or, or more every year. How many people do you expect, and do you have any new plans for RubyConf this fall? Well, actually, we're not going to triple this year. <laughs> um we did. You're right that in 2004 we had about 65 people, and in 2005 we had 200. And so we had to stop. We had to cut registration off when we got to 200, just because of the capacity of the room. This year we're probably. I, I, I I'm sort of only semi-officially saying this because I, but I, I'm pretty sure that it's going to be capped at 240 total attendance. And the reason for that is that essentially we like the Ruby conference and we like the way it's been and it's been very successful. And it's very difficult when you've got an event where every year for five years up to and including having 200 people, which you know did, did put a bit of a strain on logistics, but I think we're, you know, we're, there are some growing pains in the planning process, but I think it's going very smoothly now. But anyway, when you have an event where for five years in a row, people come away from it talking about how it's, you know, one of the best, if not the best technical conference they've ever been to, that it has a kind of unique spirit and, and so on. It's, it's very hard to motivate oneself to completely sort of revamp the event. I mean, basically, it's a successful event. It's an exciting event. And we want to keep it at at least the same, you know, sort of order of magnitude, so to speak. That means this year we're going to try it with capping it at 240, which is a little bit more than last year, but we also have a space that's, uh, you know, where that should not be a problem. So it'll stick with a single track. You won't branch right, off into yes. multiples. The, sing, the single track, I think, is um, is a key part of it. That and again, it's not that there's no room in the world for conferences that are not single track. It's just that our experience has been that people just get a kind of charge out of that, and the kind of it's rewarding in ways that 
it, that other conferences aren't. I mean, other conferences may be rewarding in ways that it isn't, but the single track thing, the idea of everybody at the conference essentially being together for three days and having really the same experience, it, it is a probably you know increasingly unusual format, but it's one that, that I think is very uh, you know very successful in a lot of ways. So are we going to, if uh, RubyConf is getting more more serious, are we going to lose the F, like OSCON, PyCon, or the other cons? Oh, no. Ah, never. <laughs> Certainly not as a token of seriousness. Let them put the F. If they want to show how serious they are, let them add the F and, and emulate us. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember, well, no, I won't. I won't get sort of, you know, whatever kind of kind of into it about i mean i i, I think I've, a lot of other conferences that have been going on for a long time are are you know are very very successful and worthwhile and so on um but we really do i think at this point have our own identity as an event um including the app so so it will stay so give us one one last plug for your book and what other kinds of things are you planning for the future well, let's see. One last plug for the book. I um, buy the book, read the book. It's, um, <laughs> it's out now. It's uh, yes, thank you. Actually, somebody asked me that today. You know, when is it? And I, I guess I haven't been shouting it from the rooftops enough. The book exists. The book is out. The book can be had from Manning. Um, www.manning.com/slash/black. There's an author online forum on that site. In other words, a, a message board that I participate in. I just created, I mean, it's sort of an experiment, but I just created the uh, Ruby for Rails IRC channel on um, irc.freenode.net. Okay. Um, but yes, the book is out. The book is shipping. Um as for future plans, I actually, you know, it's funny, I'm not sure if this is because of my background as a teacher, because maybe, you know, word is out that I've done, you know, basically a full-time professor for 13 years. It, it, I'm finding myself being contacted by a lot of people who are interested in having me do training. And so I seem to have a lot of training gigs lined up in the next few months, which is, which is nice. Ruby, Ruby and or Rails, mostly Rails things with a, you know, with a Ruby component, obviously. So that's certainly happening. I've, of course, also been doing some programming type consulting and, and, uh, and continue to be, to be interested in that along with the training. So yeah, it's a nice mix. I mean, with the writing, the, the training, the programming and so on, it's, uh, it it does seem to be reaching critical mass uh, in a good sense, um, so that's that's pleasing. And I'll have to be on my toes. Make sure I get it. Get one of the first two hundred and forty tickets to to RubyConf this fall. Right. That's right. Yes. You know, there was. I just have to say, P.S. There was a RailsConf ticket on eBay as of yesterday, and that <laughs> I felt like that was sort of a watershed moment for Ruby Central. You <laughs> know. Having our tickets actually appear on eBay—that was—that was pretty cute. Well, it's great to hear that you're doing Ruby full time now, and sounds like you've got plenty of plenty of work. Uh, Going to be in New York in a couple of weeks, and you're already gone and off to the next thing. But I'm sure you—well, I 
do know that you donate quite a bit of your time to Ruby and a lot of things behind the scenes people probably don't notice, but we appreciate that. So thank you for all your work to promote and extend Ruby. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad to do it. It seems to be uh, seems to be building on itself very nicely for all of us. This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. Transcripts courtesy of imapenguin.com. Intro music by Kate. Closing music by Wide Lucky Stiff. Audio equipment by Samson Audio. Chunky Baker. Chunky Baker.